0: Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 86. Do you remember the one laptop per child program? What went wrong? And what can we learn from the program's failure? What are the potential pitfalls of charismatic technology? And how can we avoid them when introducing students to programming? This week on the show, former guest Al Swigart and author Morgan Ames are here to talk about her book, The Charisma Machine The Life death, and legacy of one laptop per child. We discuss the OLPC program and how idealized versions of our programming backgrounds can become traps. Morgan explains how these utopian visions are still used to attempt to disrupt education. Along with this cautionary tale, we also talk about educational programs that are working and how the entry points to programming are changing. This episode is brought to you by cData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data. SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world my name is christopher bailey your host each week we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics articles and courses found at realpython.com after the podcast join us and learn real world python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com well i want to welcome back al swagger to the show again hello <laughs> Hey, you had this idea that you had sent to me a a few weeks ago and about this book that you had read, The Charisma Machine, The Life, Death, and Legacy of One Laptop Per Child, written by Morgan Ames. And I reached out and was able to get Morgan to come on the show. So, welcome to the show, Morgan.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Cool. So, we initially wanted to talk about the book a little bit in the sense that kind of how this relates to learning programming and kids getting introduced to programming, but not only that, like adults getting introduced to it also. But I thought maybe I could ask you a little bit about your background, which I found kind of interesting as to it leading into your research and your own personal background with computing. So I was looking on your site, and you have a BA in computer science and an MS in information science, and then a PhD in communication with a minor in anthropology which I can kind of see how that kind of all connects to the types of research projects that you do.
1: Yes, yeah, it kind of runs the gamut too.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is really kind of cool. Just quickly, like what, what are some of the differences between computer science and information science?
1: Yeah, very happy to talk about that. Information science is my, my current home department or home school, I guess, as well information science, most of the information science departments or divisions or schools around grew out of library science. They grew out of cataloging, you know, training librarians, basically, and kind of cataloging information that is stored in books. But in the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of library schools pivoted to include digital information. And of course, this makes them overlap some with computer science, with other disciplines that focus on digital information but i would say information schools are much more applied much more grounded in kind of real world applications and real world implications that's really where we dwell and where we find a lot of meaning where we where we put a lot of importance and some computer science some Faculty in computer science departments might also be kind of applied and focus on those kinds of things, but in general, and certainly my own training, kind of pointed towards this. You know, computer science often almost prides itself on being kind of separated from the real world, on being kind of abstracted, on being, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, being being something that that is more more theoretical, perhaps. And again, individual subdisciplines within computer science and individual faculty members might take different approaches but but I would say as a field computer science is is a bit more abstract a bit more theoretical a bit more focused on kind of the ins and outs of of maybe programming languages or maybe you know the limits of computation computability these kinds of questions rather than what effects do these systems have in the world
0: <laughs> yeah definitely i can see that yeah it's funny that that sort of shift happened I think while I was in school, in like high school, the idea of like a library being turned into like a media center or whatever they wanted to retitle things and the idea that like a lot of the computers that are in some schools at the time were sort of in, in those
2: places in the media center or in the uh, library. That was a a big thing in the, in the nineties too, with, with my experience was getting computers in the classroom and, and this idea that if we just dropped a computer in every classroom, this would somehow improve education in some vague uh, and ambiguous way.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, in the 1980s, in fact, um, when I was an elementary school student, which... which... You know, ages me, but that's fine. <laughs> okay, so um, you're
0: in a good group. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I I used one of the precursors to the One Laptop per Child project um, logo. It was rolled out nationwide, including my completely ordinary, somewhat underfunded public school in a suburban Salt Lake City, Utah. And, um, so we had our weekly session on the logo computers in the back room of the library. So, so yes, I, I'm very familiar with, with that trend generally, as well as, you know, the kinds of, I guess, computing imaginaries that, that they, even my elementary school held for us.
0: Yeah, we had, um, I think an Apple II lab in my junior high. It was like the first place that I saw that, um, this was in a suburb of Denver and, when I moved back to Arizona in high school, it was actually a much smaller computer area that they had. <laughs> it was, a. Uh, i think a set of like maybe trs 80s or something hmm. so again aging myself um <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so i think we we all have that background of yeah. oh we got into programming as as children and and that's the main thing that that struck me about the charisma machine this book was i saw so much of my own childhood in this under a much more critical lens, because I learned how to code in BASIC when when I was a kid, and then later moved on to other languages, such as Python, and I, you know, when I first heard about the One Laptop per Child project, I immediately thought, this is a great idea, because this will be just like programming was for me, and lots of kids will learn computing and and how to code, and even if they don't become software engineers, they'll become more capable adults, and all you just need to do is put computers into into kids' hands. <laughs> um, right, the magic ingredient. <laughs> because that was that was sort of uh, what my experience was. You know, learning to code in Basic.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm so glad that you that you highlight that because I think many who joined this project certainly who were employees of One Laptop or Child back in the day, but many who contributed to it in other ways. Maybe writing open source code, maybe, you know, buying one or more give one, get one laptops, maybe discussing it online. They really saw themselves reflected in these stories, too. And, And it was, in fact... For the at least my contacts within One Laptop Per Child, it was very common to kind of talk about, well, when I was a kid, I used this kind of machine. This is the sorts of things I did on it. This is what I want to unlock. So it was a very conscious part of the design process from, from again, what I heard and then what I gleaned from all of these very extensive online discussions about the design process.
2: We should probably go into what the OLPC uh, project actually was just for people who who aren't familiar with it because it was uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, 15, 16 I think it was first announced oh, wow. now. <laughs> um, so it's been quite a while. Yeah, it's it's funny. I talk to undergrads about it in particular and and I get lots of blank looks, so I have to go into a little bit of detail about it. So yeah, it's a it's a project that came out of the MIT Media Lab sort of spearheaded by Nicholas Negroponte, but really with Seymour Papert um, as the kind of intellectual leader for it, both professors at the Media Lab. And its goal was to put a low-cost, easily repairable, open-source software computer with a lot of educational software on it in the hands of every child across the Global South. And the idea, much as you articulated, was that once they had this laptop, they would be inspired to to explore it, to learn programming languages, to connect with other children, to really leapfrog past. The adults in their lives to, you know, make up for any kinds of infrastructural deficiencies. The idea was that this would have a mesh network. It would allow kids to connect to one another even across the town. They could share internet connections as long as somebody had one. They had, there was a view source button so they could hit that button and see the source code of whatever program was running. They could charge it in a lot of different ways. Originally, they were, Nicholas Negroponte was talking up the fact that it would have a hand crank to charge it. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah. I
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, This was not feasible, sadly, for a number of different reasons. You couldn't generate enough electricity. It's not great for hands, honestly.
2: Yeah, I bought one of those emergency flashlights yeah. with the hand crank. And what you oh. immediately realize is that you really can't generate enough electricity and also your hand will cramp <laughs> far before you actually recharge the battery on that thing. It's, it's just not, absolutely. it's not practical.
1: Yeah. And if you, if that, if you need to crank that much for just that one little LED, or maybe they have, you know, a few little LEDs in there, <laughs> uh, you know, this was a lower power computer, but it was, but it still needed power. So anyway, that was the idea, right? And it sounds like a great idea. Honestly, one of my motivations for going into computer science myself was to make the world a better place. And so I really understood why people were so attracted to this, because here is this project in very concrete terms, trying to make the world a better place. And in a way that really resonated with computer scientists in particular. So there were a few, I guess, other pieces of this. They really wanted children to own the machines. And this was kind of a cornerstone of Seymour Papert's philosophy that goes back again, Developing this particular, really most popular branch of the logo programming language, Turtle Graphics as a kind of part of that, you know, other collaborations and projects that he had over the years. But one central part was that kids should really be free to explore things as deeply as they want. Um, So kids own the laptops. They were targeting elementary age kids. This isn't a high school project, it's elementary school. They wanted these to be connected to the internet. This was, you know, not a requirement different projects on the ground would have to kind of work on those logistics themselves, but that was kind of the idea. And they wanted all kids in an area to have them. And then again, as I mentioned, they they were committed, with only a few little hiccups along the way, to free and open source software. And that is what the laptop ship, shipped with. It's a Sugar, which is a kind of windowing system on top of I believe fedora linux and and then there were a number of of applications that had de- been developed over the years by either MIT Media Lab or other affiliates such as scratch uh, the tam tam music suite turtle. Art, I think it was renamed Turtle Blocks, and then back to Turtle Art, uh, eToys, Alan Kay's project, and and other things that uh, that have been developed over the years shipped on this machine.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up turtles because I'm using the, the Scratch programming environment, which is also from MIT, and it's uh, headed up by Mitch Resnick, who I believe was a grad student of Seymour Papert. About a year ago, I think they released Scratch version three. And one thing that I noticed is that the pen tools, which were basically the turtle tools that would let you draw lines and, and spirograph art and sort of things. They now have those hidden by default. They aren't, you can still add them in, but, uh, they're, they're not a part of the code blocks that you can use normally. And so from what I gather is that the, you know, the turtle graphics features of Scratch just really aren't that popular with, with kids who are using it.
1: Yeah, I think back in the, even in the 1980s, I remember as an elementary school student, a lot of it was over my head at the time, I got (laughs) to say. And I didn't have that kind of open-ended opportunity to explore at the time. But I think it was a novelty in the 1980s when displays were, you know, still often just four colors, right? Or maybe even just one color. Oh, yeah. The fact that you could move things around on a computer screen was like, whoa, really? And of course, now kids have... Screens, right? They they are very used to <laughs> cursors, they are very used to the idea of interactivity, they are very used to a really rich multimedia environment. So I think in many ways, you know, things like moving a turtle across the screen just aren't necessarily <laughs> as compelling. In fact, right. a lot of the things that that many of the OLPC people remember from their childhoods and the way they, in a way, kind of mythologize their childhoods, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, Yes, are not necessarily true for today's kids. It's a very different, you know, media landscape. It's a very different kind of programming, computing environments.
2: Yeah, text-based games aren't really, uh, they don't have the same hold on kids anymore. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Um, and so many, I mean, there are so many games of course that use in some ways the same mechanics as a text-based game, right? There's an adventure game, but there's, there's an expectation of these rich graphics that, that accompany it. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's, Changed a lot, so I'm I'm not surprised in a way that Scratch, and that that Mitch and his team made that decision. I think in many ways, even though Scratch and and you know Mitch's projects more generally are very much kind of in the tradition of Seymour Papert's uh, philosophy. In fact, I, Mitch Resnick holds the I think the Seymour Papert endowed endowed chair at the MIT Media Lab. He and his group have really done their best to learn from the mistakes of one laptop or child, of logo, of other things, and really try to make a bit more inclusive environment. That said, I I think they still, you know, tend to have a fair number more boys than girls in, that, in the scratch environment. Some of the most active members are girls, interestingly, but, you know, there's still some kind of cultural baggage around who gets to program, who is seen as quote-unquote a natural that that influences things like Scratch and even even with the changes. One thing I do like about Scratch is that they tend to focus a little bit more on, on storytelling and kind of theatrical aspects, right? You move this cat around, you tell stories with the cat. There's a kind of natural theatricality to Scratch, I would say.
2: Right. It's it's not just calculating Fibonacci sequence numbers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or make, I mean, making pretty pictures, I think, is is a wonderful motivation for some in Logo, but it really doesn't Really doesn't grab some people. Whereas telling stories also doesn't grab some kids. But I think I think you know we we tend to think in stories. We tend to make sense of our lives and our surroundings in stories. And so that I think lends itself a little more naturally to that being a, a good entry point into uh, into programming.
0: C Data Software connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At Cdata, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and Big Data. Check out cdata.com to learn more. I have a question about, you mentioned that one of the ideas behind the direction of where they were going to implement this project of One Laptop per Child was the Global South. And I I guess I haven't heard heard that defined. Is that South America mm -hmm. and other, like Mexico, or what are the different places that were included in that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that many people would say, quote-unquote, the developing world. What We used to say the third world, right? The third world was a kind of Cold War legacy, the first world being the democratic nations, second world being communist, third world being the places where those two were jockeying for position. Mm -hmm. That was kind of replaced by the developing world. But there's so much baggage around development and the politics of development who, developed for whom, by whom, right, who sets the bar for what is developed, etc., right. that anthropology and other fields tended to move away from that and say the global south instead. And, of course, this has its own politics. Anything we, we uh, <laughs> any term we use for this kind of thing will have its own politics. But, but the idea is, you know, in a way... Talking about "quote unquote" the developing world without that those connotations of well, here's what's developed and here's what's not developed and here's the path you take to development, it really takes into account all of the, or tries to at least try, takes into account all of the, you know legacies of extractivism that have shaped. Much many places across the global South. Um, certainly, the countries in Africa, especially Central Africa, but also you know Latin America, South and Central America, the Caribbean, the Pacific, uh, Pacific Islands, yeah. South Asia. There's a lot of different places that have that would be counted as quote unquote the global South. And yeah, that term just nods to that history a little bit more.
0: Okay, one of the big focuses that you have. Uh, from the title of the book is, is this idea of charisma and I kind of want to get your interpretation of that and kind of like how these sort of charismatic models have developed over time and are sort of held up, if you will, a bit of a pedestal of like, this is how it's done.
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, when we think about charisma, right, in a kind of colloquial sense, we often think about people. Oh, there's a charismatic, I don't know, cult leader, maybe or a religious figure. Um, certain politicians are, are charismatic, right? They're, they have a kind of magnetism. They, they attract attention. They draw people to them and to their cause. And one move that my my what i would say is is one of my core disciplines science and technology studies is to use some of the same analytical tools that we use for people on objects hmm. and to think carefully about what that might serve one of the reasons for this is that science and technology studies sts acknowledges that objects like laptops like like maybe infrastructures, other things, end up having effects in the world beyond what the designers intended, right? They... It, it's not just a kind of conduit for whatever the designer wants, right there's this kind of back and forth between a technology and a user, of course, the design of the technology initially is also something that doesn't happen in a cultural vacuum there's a kind of back and forth between what the designer thinks the world needs or a particular user base needs, how they understand the world, how they understand those those technology users, and then how they kind of instantiate that in design so when I thought about this, I was as I was following the One Laptop per Child project, I kept coming up against these ideas that seemed to have a kind of life of their own in the world. And certainly, Nicholas Negroponte, as a kind of spokesperson for One Laptop per Child, and others who were part of the One Laptop per Child project were promoting certain ideas. But the laptop itself came to symbolize a kind of future, a kind of utopia. Hmm that in some ways took on a a bit of a life of its own. And so I thought, you know, this laptop itself kind of has charisma. It has, it symbolizes this particular um, worldview and this particular hope, this particular utopian hope that maybe takes slightly different shapes among different communities, but still is kind of charismatic in how it resonates with them. So, um, so yeah, the idea of, of charisma ends up tying in kind of closely with, with, this utopianism um, in the case of One Laptop per Child. Yeah. Now, utopianism, you know, as is, is a kind of literary idea, often is about a a construct of a world that is very separated from our own. But within technology, utopian ideas are very common.
2: Yeah, This this idea that we can... Uh, solve racism by creating an app. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it sounds, you know, when we put it in in such stark terms, it's, it's like, okay, that's that's probably ridiculous. But various forms of these stories circulate. They get kind of co opted into different projects. In some cases, really the same story. So what I found interesting with the one laptop or child project, this laptop was charismatic. In a way that really resonated with existing worldviews of the open source community, among the those who consider them, themselves part of the the quote unquote you know hacker crowd of MIT, um, and these are hackers not in the breaking into computers sense, but in the you know passionate technical tinkerers sense, uh, which has a long history at MIT and elsewhere. And uh, and moreover, this wasn't the first time that these stories had been kind of embodied in a project and in a in a piece of hardware, right? Um, The same stories were told about Logo. The same stories have been told about other pieces of, of children's technology. The same stories have been told since, too. So even though One Laptop or Child in many ways failed, the same stories came up when we talked about MOOCs or maker spaces yeah. or yes, you know tech-heavy charter schools. There are a lot of different movements that promise the same kind of you know inspirational tinkering to children that One Laptop per Child promised, without really taking into account why One Laptop per Child or it, the previous iterations of it didn't succeed
2: yeah and we we see this continue today in other spaces in tech a lot of hype around ai and deep learning or blockchain and cryptocurrencies or virtual reality and and uh, augmented reality those are things where uh you know we it's like hey we can just add a vr headset and suddenly the metaverse is is cool and and practical and a good idea when really our meeting, you just our
0: meetings will be enjoyable
2: <laughs> yeah when really you just end up getting motion sickness and you have a sweaty set of goggles strapped to your face for 3 hours at a time yeah. we we tend to see the the great appeal of it and not the not the impracticalities of it
1: Absolutely. Well, and I I think virtual reality in particular is one (laughs) that has certainly been in the news a lot the last last little while. Ethan Zuckerman wrote just a wonderful essay. He is a former MIT Media Lab professor, um, but just really thoughtful about his own contributions from the the 1990s onward in the, the realm of virtual reality and augmented reality. And why those ended up kind of failing. And I think they failed for many of the same reasons that you talk about. But more broadly, I would say that many of these utopian visions don't connect themselves to the messiness of real life. In a way, we, we rely on holding them at arm's length and saying, oh, you know, here's this, this shiny, very different vision from our, our everyday life. And the role of utopia as a kind of escapist view is, of course, in literature, well-established. But I think it tends to be a little under-examined in technology, the, the lack of connection between you know, our everyday sitting in front of our computers for Zoom meetings, whatever it might be, and that shiny vision of the, you know, hyper-modernist Mark Zuckerberg room or, you know, playing playing cards with your friends online or whatever it might be, right? There isn't really a connection with, well, what do I have to do kind of day-to-day in these spaces? How would that be different in virtual reality? How would it be better? How would it be worse? A lot of that gets shunted away in these utopian visions.
0: Do you feel like they, they don't have the wherewithal to like do a longer study of that thing, as opposed to like rushing to you know shove it out into the market. Like like actually have you know a, a group of people use it for a year or whatever and think about it. I think of like the mission to Mars kind of things. Like you know, can how long can people stand being together? You know these kind of like uh, biosphere kind of <laughs> experiments
2: I mean, that we, happen We kind with of humans. found that out the last year or two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, indeed. So I think, I mean, you know, every project ends up being run a little bit differently. There have been many experiments with how these ideas, you know, bear out on the ground in various iterations, certainly with VR, right? There are lots of people who have been studying this for decades. Similarly with, you know, getting computers in the hands of kids. Lots of people have have done one-to-one laptop projects. They have Maybe, you know, followed Seymour Papert's suggestions in really giving kids full access in some cases. Other ones, you know, the laptop might be owned by the school or might be locked down in various ways. Mm. One troubling trend today is that these laptops from schools are often packed with surveillance software where teachers can kind of track and administrators can track remotely what kids are doing on the laptops
2: and that's at school or even at home
1: at home including yeah and i would say this is a dystopian vision that is very close <laughs> yeah. to reality unfortunately and and you know it is reality in many cases but more broadly i think both of these visions right really rely on being separated from from reality when you account for what those teams are actually doing and exploring on the ground, the utopian vision ends up kind of falling apart because you realize, oh, there's a lot of kind of messiness that goes with this project. There are people who don't want to engage in this way. What's going to become of them? There are people who maybe co-opt it, maybe abuse this platform in various ways. What what happens then, right? All of this gets shunted away in the utopian story. So in a fa- in a way, even though people have been on the ground doing the kind of work that is needed to to... Understand how this would actually fit in the messiness of day to day life. Yeah. The utopian stories persist, and they get retold again with with a lot of similarity um, across a lot of new technologies. And
2: I think Python plays sort of a large role in a lot of this because uh, right now, and, and for the last several years, or really, actually, for the last several decades, learn to code has become this this idea where if we just learn to code then then people can automatically improve their lives and you know I'm I'm the author of Automate the Boring Stuff with Python which is a book that's really sort of aimed at office workers and teaching office workers how to code or or people who aren't necessarily software engineers and uh, one thing that I've noticed is that now there are a lot of self-published books that you can find that are trying to uh, cash in on this trend and when I look at Amazon, and and I can always pick them out because they'll have the the kind of amateurish cover design. Their their titles will be about thirty words long because they're trying to capture all the search engine <laughs> uh, terms. And they'll ha- they'll have about a dozen five star reviews the week that they come out, and then no reviews after that. Yeah. So pretty clear that they're just uh, buying reviews to to promote them. And that's that's one reason why uh, when I read the Charisma Machine. I thought this is such an important book because this is going to keep happening over and over again where technology makes all these promises and we get really caught up and mesmerized by by the charisma of it all. And we don't ask the very practical questions of, does this actually work in the real world?
1: Absolutely, so i I want to I, one reason I'm so thrilled to be here on this podcast is that I actually love python i It's my scripting language of choice. um I definitely lean on it for at this point kind of spaghetti code scripts of you know, oh, I need a bunch of articles from a website <laughs> and I don't want to download them all manually, whatever it might be, right? I love having that skill set to lean on, and I think there is power in it and As a kind of a code, you know, I I remember talking back in the when I first learned it in the early 2000s with some of the people contributing to the um, language design, which were some of them were at Berkeley at the time when I was there as an undergrad. And one of the goals of Python, of course, was learnability, make it really clear, make it something that isn't you know perl at the time was also very popular and of course perl is is known for its <laughs> obfuscation people are, are proud of their very obfuscated perl programs yeah. you um, can mash and... <laughs> the keyboard at random
2: and produce a <laughs> syntactically correct perl program it's, yeah. it's very punctuation heavy yeah
0: Absolutely. with regular expressions included <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. so python was was a wonderful alternative to that and i think that as a as a learning platform and even as a you know as a kind of core programming platform. It's it's really wonderful. That said, the movement to teach everyone to code is one I worry a little bit about. Um, I do think there is value in it. And I think everyone, just knowing a little bit more about how their machines work, what 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 are the real limitations of them, right? How can you figure out what they're doing? If you're maybe worried about, are they recording me, what's going on, right? Knowing a little bit about how your machine works means you can kind of, you can at least somewhat investigate some of those things and understand what's going on. That said, I, I personally feel like a missing component of many of the learn-to-code p- sorts of initiatives, the Hour of Code and other things, is a kind of critical awareness of how computing environments situate themselves within our lives more broadly. You know, certainly their role in surveillance is something that I am very worried about. And I mentioned earlier, surveillance even of school children is is incredibly common today. Our data gets Kind of harvested and, and repurposed. Of course, there's a lot of garbage in that. And one of the old maxims in computer science is garbage in, garbage out. So we may not actually get much value out of that. But of course, one thing that AI promises, um, whether it can deliver or not, is yet to be seen is that um, it breaks that maxim right garbage in but you get enough garbage and you can start to glean insights now the way that ads get targeted or mistargeted at me on a regular basis i somewhat doubt that but you know i i reserve <laughs> judgment sure i think that ai is good for certain things i fear some of the things that it might be used for certainly you know facial recognition everywhere we go is something that I think is actually really harmful um, and a huge invasion of privacy and and self-determination. But there's, you know, a lot of other wonderful things that come from it. Language translation has improved so much with these, with these amazing language models, right? So I think there's good and bad in that. <laughs> but more broadly, sorry, I'm, I uh, tend to ramble a little bit. There's always so many great topics to cover. Oh, yeah. I would say that, I really want kids who learn a little bit about coding to also learn a little bit about kind of critical perspectives on computing environments. You know, learn a little bit about those surveillance networks, learn a little bit about the kind of political economy that supports them, um, learn a little bit about how to tell truth from fiction, what kinds of incentives people have to tell lies online and what those lies might look like. How do you verify things, right? All of these kinds of of critical media sensibilities are things that are traditionally taught in humanities, right? English classes really have focused on this, but um, certainly at the college level, those sides of campus have, have been consistently defunded for for decades, at this point, <laughs> and and uh, it's you know certainly at Berkeley, there's this whole new division of computing, data science, and society. They're heavy on the computing and data science, still working out the end society part, <laughs> but are really focused on those technical skills and not necessarily the the grounding in okay, what are the consequences of this? How do we grapple with this in our daily lives? How do we make sense of it? How do we push back against it when we need to? And those are the sorts of things that. I certainly try to teach in my own classes, kind of hand in hand with technical skills, and I would love to see incorporated more broadly into these these uh, you know Hour of Code and other kind of learn to code initiatives.
0: I think that's fascinating. I I agree that the the critical perspective is something that isn't isn't focused upon, and, and maybe it's because it. It hasn't had its own sort of charismatic model for that in, in the background. Um, I, I was thinking of a joke that I've heard a lot lately that, you know, the older generations were so worried about video games, you know, messing with kids and distorting their views and making <laughs> yeah. them all... You Don't know, sit miss... so
2: close to the TV.
0: <laughs> right. You know, and meanwhile, this older generation has completely been... Filled with misinformation from Facebook and what have you, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Television too,
2: yep. Be careful of strangers on the internet. And now we get into strangers' cars that we've summoned through the internet.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Totally, yeah. (laughs) Well, I wonder if, like, in that idea of, like, I would find it fascinating. But, again, I'm what you had labeled as a precocious a uh, boy, <laughs> you know, technically precocious boy, and so I'm I'm interested in the idea of like, you know, what information is being gathered about me? You know, what information, uh, you know, and actually finding the the ways around that. And I I wonder though, as kids generally are sort of swimming in technology today, what is the step that makes them, you know, take a step back and say? Hey, you know, what is happening here and you know and kind of gathering that information.
1: Yeah, it's a big question. I, there are a couple pieces too that I I'd, I'd love to respond to of of your of your comment. Yeah. One is the that media scares, right? Oh, video games are terrible. We hear it now about about phones, right? When when usually in middle school, that's typically when kids start to get phones, sometimes it's a little younger, sometimes it's a little older. But you know when they get those there's a whole kind of
0: screen time and all that stuff
1: yeah all the scares and that comes back all the way to preschool right all that all the talk about oh it's it's like Drugs for your child's brains, right? (laughs) Same story we heard about video games, same story we heard about television, same story that was told about novels back when novels were kind of new (laughs) and and kids were not reading the Bible, they were reading novels, right? And it's going to rot their brains. (laughs) So I I just, I, I love kind of just historicizing that a little bit and saying, like, yeah, we've told those same stories over and over. In a lot of ways, those dystopian stories can be flip sides of utopian, both of them are removed from reality. And I think you, you're really insightful and, and on point in saying that, you know, this kind of critical digital sensibility doesn't have a charismatic story. You are absolutely right. I mean, I feel like this is, you know, a common problem with a lot of movements that ended up, real, that end up really grounded in people's lived experiences. It can be hard to distill that really messy Reality with a lot of different competing desires into a crystalline and really compelling image into into that charismatic story. I think that we should have more movements that do try to do that, that try to galvanize people around maybe labor conditions, I do feel like there's been some shifts within the technology industry in the last few years towards, you know, unionization, towards attention to labor, towards attention to what kinds of precarious labor platforms like maybe Amazon Mechanical Turk enable, right? And uh, and what that means for kind of the, the economy more generally. So I feel like there's some stories around that in particular, but there aren't a lot of really compelling stories around like, yeah, you know, kids using tech, it's not it's not a drug for their brain, anything's fine in moderation. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is kind of connects to, as you mentioned, the technically precocious boy idea. And this is the idea that kids take to technology like fish to water, right? They're naturals. They're so good at it. They pick it up so easily. I've certainly worked with a lot of children, and many of them are really fearless when it comes to technology. Yeah. I do think there's a a worrying elision, though, between that fearlessness and real technical knowledge. Hmm. Certainly, there are a lot of, of... Students who come to college, for example, um, having kind of learned a little bit about code and written some programs, and they have a lot of confidence, but they don't have a lot of good technique, right? It's like somebody kind of tinkering yes. around on a musical instrument and being like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really great, right, without being able to listen to others playing that instrument or to really have any kind of music technique behind it. This isn't a perfect analogy, but, right. but you know, that, that idea of the self-taught coder... I mean
2: one thing that I that I tell people over and over again is that you know I was one of these uh kids who quote unquote taught themselves how to code but really everything I learned about programming between you know the 3rd grade and graduating high school you could probably teach yourself in about a dozen weekends or so like it, it turns out like my head start wasn't really that big of a head start and I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. The, I, I had lots of friends. I, so I was not a coder in high school. Um, I came to it in college, but I had lots of friends who, who considered themselves very good hackers in high school. <laughs> oh, <yes>. and, <laughs> and as I got into computer science, I was like, oh, is that all? That's what they were talking about. Oh, my gosh. It's like, really, they only knew that
2: one (laughs) weird trick. Um, Yes.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they were were a headline ahead of their time. The one weird trick.
0: (laughs) This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It uses a real-world project to help you hone your skills with wrangling data using Python. The course is based on a step-by-step RealPython tutorial by Brian Weber, And in the course, instructor Cesar Aguilar takes you through how to load and merge data from multiple sources with Pandas, how to filter and group data in Pandas data frames, and how to calculate and plot grades in a Pandas data frame. Along the way, you'll practice many of the skills you need to work effectively in Pandas, like working with CSV files, aggregating values, and how to assemble it all into a real world project. Like all the video courses on RealPython, It's broken into easily consumable sections, plus you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com.
1: So I I want to get into that story a little bit, of though, about the technically precocious boy, because I think the way we tell stories to ourselves and to others about our past is incredibly, incredibly important for how we see ourselves, how we act in the world. And in the tech world, that story of teaching yourself to program, right, of, of falling in love with the machine, of really it being about you and the computer, has a couple downsides. One is that it tends to exclude people, people like me who came to it in college, right? I really liked right. math before that, but it wasn't until college I took my first programming class. It tends to exclude others who find other routes, right, that don't have that kind of neat and tidy mythology that you're able to kind of fit into that. Here's how I taught myself to code when I was fairly young. It also obscures all of the things that helped you along the way. And of course, I don't know your story in particular, but in many cases, right, there's somebody who got that person, that child, a computer in the first place. There's someone who maybe gave them access to Maybe it's coding magazines, especially in the 1980s, right? The, yeah. the back of yeah. Scientific American had basic programs. You could type in and, and then run and then debug and figure out why it wasn't working the way it should. There were many magazines dedicated to this at the time. And that's how a lot of people learned to code. But somebody brought those into the house, right? Right. Somebody enabled that 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 access. There was, And of course, today, it's more maybe it's... Uh, Stack Overflow, whatever it might be. There are a lot of different tutorials online, these Hour of Code things. There are whole big teams, right? There's a whole uh, kind of big Google team devoted to to Hour of Code and other volunteers as well. And then this gets kind of deployed through teachers and, and parents and others who support those activities. And then, of course, there's somewhere... These people go when they have trouble, right? If the computer's not booting properly. If they run into some bug in their code, maybe they look it up, but they have to figure out how to look it up. This really came to the forefront when I ran a, a summer camp with a colleague of mine, Jenna Burrell. We ran a Minecraft summer camp in Richmond, California. It's a low-income, you know, historically red-lined community just north of Berkeley. And most of our kids were Black or latine. Um, children. They were passionate about Minecraft. They had played it a lot on mobile devices, on tablets. But when they came to us, many of them hadn't used computers much. Installing Minecraft mods was really a technical process. You have to kind of go in and copy JavaScript files into a particular folder on your machine. That's not something that's going to be available to a lot of kids. So, even the stories about Minecraft we tell of like this, there's this great environment to kind of foster computational thinking. You can mod it in various ways. Kids to learn to program in it. Only kids who have a really technical set of resources to draw on, whether it's a parent or a teacher or, you know, I, I wouldn't want to claim our one-off, you know, our, our, I guess it happened a few summers, but our summer camp for a few summers really influenced those children much, right? That's not a kind of ongoing resource they could draw on, but but they got a sense of of how different Minecraft maybe is and more flexible it is on a computer from us. But those stories tend to obscure all of those other resources that that factor into people learning to program.
0: Yeah, it's funny. The the Minecraft thing, one I've done a survey kind of asking people about this and where a lot of people ended up going from a Minecraft sort of background isn't necessarily into the programming part, but they learned all these skills that are really useful in like sort of dev ops you know like all the things that are required to to keep the machine running to have a server to like the care and feeding of all the packages and stuff that go into it and, and so forth they kind of learn all that sort of interesting infrastructure stuff which i, I thought was like i don't know it was very different and al you had you had a, a experience with your minecraft book right
2: yeah yeah and and also just talking with with kids uh and, uh, and other folks who yeah did did that sort of minecraft admin to i t sort of transition because there's there's so many things that come up when you want to just have a Minecraft server for your friends uh, and then you learn about all the mods and all the versioning conflicts between mods and uh and uptime and then even setting up monitoring systems and community moderation. Uh, just to prevent <laughs> griefers from destroying <laughs> everything in the virtual yeah. world. Oh my
1: goodness! Yes,
2: and and even to the point of of some cybersecurity stuff where uh, you want to prevent other people from can you know sending a denial of service attack against your Minecraft server because they got mad at the admins or or something like that. So it's it's sort of provided that a, a motivation really to to get into IT and and DevOps-type uh, roles. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that has to go into it. And I found that for a lot of our students, you know, maybe they, many of them had kind of one broken down computer at home. Maybe it wasn't even functional or maybe it was kind of barely functional, but it wasn't connected to the internet because people had only internet connections to their phones. But, you know, it was, they weren't allowed to tether, for example. So their computer was kind of an isolated thing. And they were typing... You know, some of these, usually it was brothers or sisters of the people in the camp because they tended to be a little bit younger, but some of them were in in high school or early college, they were literally typing up essays for their classes on their phones because that was their computing device. Oh, wow. Or they would go to the school to type things up on very overused computer labs, or they would go to Richmond Library, which was only open, you know, in four-hour chunks a couple days a week because they were so underfunded. Right These are the kinds of computing environments that are so common across the United States and the world, but get alighted away in visions of virtual reality or visions of right you know remote schooling i mean it's
2: it's kind of a pain to to because we have such a huge e waste problem, and I know I have uh, desktop machines and even laptops that are half built just in the room that i 'm sitting in right now and you know, just because we, we have plentiful computers everywhere, the hardware is there. That doesn't mean that it's working, that it's operational, that people will have the tech support needed or, or the internet connectivity. Um, even if they have internet on their phones, like, like you said, you know, they, that's not the same thing as having a a desktop computer or a laptop computer with internet on it that they can use. And, uh, there's, there's such a wide range of all these devices. And unfortunately it's, Mm -hmm. It nobody can really make lots of money by recycling old PCs and putting in all the the labor and effort into getting people's old computers up and running. You know, it, it'd be much better just to have a, a million dollar deal to to have a school district buy iPads and and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And I got to say, the the million-dollar deal to, to buy iPads or $10 million, whatever it might be, right, Yeah, is a lot flashier, a lot more utopian than the ongoing care and maintenance of those iPads. And then the training that teachers need, the training that students and families might need. All of those pieces aren't the exciting parts of those projects. And this is a big problem. I think Certainly a big problem in the One Laptop per Child project. There was a lot of focus on getting the machines into the hands of kids. Seymour Papert, in a talk in 2016, literally said, or 2006, sorry, um, literally said, Eight-year-olds can do 90% of tech support and 12-year-olds 100%, and it's not exploitation. It's a valuable learning opportunity. This was not (laughs) true in the field, right? It it turns out (laughs) eight-year-olds aren't just going to
2: swim in technology so easily that they can repair uh, microchips.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And the sorts of things that went wrong with these machines, the most common breakage point were chargers, the The cables were, they didn't choose well. They're these plastic cables that can stretch, you know, kids swing things. Man, if you've you've interacted with, (laughs) I'm sure you've interacted with kids and machines, like they fiddle, they fiddle with stuff. They break stuff all the time. They break cords, especially in the Minecraft camp, Jenna and I ran, you know, we had headphones for all the kids and boy, those headphone cords just took a beating.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I worked at a school for recording engineers and it was like, post high school, but it was a mix of things. And the, the guy was sort of the main technician to take care of all the equipment. He said, you can never make anything student proof. You can just make it student resistant. That was like his, (laughs) his claim.
1: (laughs) That's a great, (laughs) such a wonderful... Yeah, in much the way that water-resistant things, you don't actually want to get them wet.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not yeah, the idea. It's, <laughs> it's funny that you bring up how how sort of, you know, we got all these laptops into the hands of kids and then just sort of walked away because all the other stuff isn't the fun part of the project. And, and I think a lot of programmers can relate to this because it's a lot of fun to write code. It's not a lot of fun to write documentation right. or comments or unit tests yep. or promote your open source project on forums and social media and and all these other things that are absolutely necessary for a working piece of software but aren't as fun as writing the initial code
1: absolutely well and i you look at how you know project software maintenance in particular goes out in the world too i have a a friend marissa Cohn who did this wonderful study of kind of long-term nasa projects right a lot of these rovers that get sent or or probes that get sent are launched but then it's 10 15 20 years until they actually reach their their destination right and all during that time there is maintenance work that needs to be done on the project she found that these maintenance teams were largely staffed by women they were incredibly technical they dealt with all kinds of just crazy you know software faults and other things things that had to be pushed to you know some probe that's that's the light takes maybe a half a day to get there, right? The message takes that long to come, and so it's a whole day before they get a message back knowing whether they succeeded. And these were not the sexy projects at NASA, right? There were a lot of kind of men jockeying for promotions who were on the launch team, and then the maintenance team ended up being more often these kind of long career women on the projects. Anyway, that's a...
2: (laughs) And and that goes back to the history of computing as well, uh, where it was it was considered like hardware design was was the cool part, and so that was men's jobs. Whereas actually writing the software was seen as as sort of clerical work, and so a lot of women, a lot of the first programmers were women.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up. I love in some of my classes going over a little bit of that history of of computer science, of of um, programming, and talking a bit about how this was a woman's job up until the 1960s, really. And women were incredibly technical, incredibly, in many cases, pretty well-paid, because if they left, the project would be kind of in dire straits, but were generally not kind of well-regarded because that was the the culture of the time. Um, as you said, it was seen a little bit as clerical work. And then, of course, there was this shift in the 1960s and 1970s that, you know, many many uh, historians have traced in detail. Nathan Ensminger has wonderful histories on that. Fred Turner also talks a bit about how, you know, ideas of computation ended up getting attached not to these huge government projects, which really defined computing in the 1950s and 1960s, often defense with defense ties, but ended up being connected to the counterculture of all things, right? And and this idea of, of hackers being kind of countercultural was, was something that was really actively fostered in part by the very people who were behind One Laptop or Child. Seymour Papert joined MIT in the 1960s, joined Marvin Minsky's lab. Minsky's lab, of course, is famous for enabling hackers, self, self-described hackers, to use all of the big you know, timeshare PDP computers overnight, and they programmed space war, they programmed all sorts of fun games, they played pranks on one another. This was part of the culture of MIT as well, but this really became a a kind of source of a lot of both computational mythologies and also a source of this shift from programming being kind of women's clerical work to programming being this kind of macho thing to do, almost an alternative to the kind of, you know, the the jock sort of persona, that kind of archetype of, if we think, or stereotype, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So, So, yeah, I mean, I would say that certainly programming is not something that has to be masculine, and one reason that I love telling that story to my students is because it really blows away some of their preconceptions about even some of the movements to bring more women into computing, right? There's a lot of movements around like, well, we just need to, you know, make sure we get more women in the pipeline early and make sure they don't drop out and make sure they and it's like, well, what have we done to change the cultural assumptions around computing. These are not natural in any way, right? They were something that were the the product of especially a kind of late 1960s into the 1970s and also into the 1980s shift in computing cultures. And knowing that history can really be beneficial.
2: Yeah, I I talk about that with my own history of of learning how to program because I was really into Nintendo, like the the 8-bit uh, nintendo entertainment system and i looked into the history of of just video games and how atari pong was was really popular in the 70s but then there were all sorts of other cheap knockoffs and and really low quality games and it culminated into the uh, the video game crash of 1983 where video games almost just stopped being a medium or, or a form of activity uh, it was i think 97 percent of the revenue for video games just fell out in that one year and what really sort of saved video games in that period was uh nintendo from from japan where they had they took the time to develop well-designed games that were really accessible but also changing in the way that they marketed it in order to create nintendo games you had to be uh, licensed from nintendo so they could have quality control and also uh Instead of selling these Ataris and other video game consoles in the electronics section of stores, they wanted to sell video games in the toy section of stores. And all toys were split into boy toys and girl toys. And so there was just a decision of, well, video games will just be sold in the boy toys section. And that has had a lot of repercussions to this day where video games are seen as uh, something that uh, predominantly boys do, like most gamers are are considered to be men or, or even though when you actually look at the numbers for video games it 's pretty much split evenly yep uh, across the population
1: yeah absolutely i 'm so glad you you go over that history, and that that decision to put the the consoles and the games in in the boy toy aisle fits. You know, a century of marketing technical toys to boys, if we think of erector sets, if we think of you know kind of early, I don't know kind of engineering applications, right? There's always yeah, been those this little
2: chemistry sets.: yeah,
1: exactly. there There's long been a association with particular toys, of course, with play. And with kind of freedom, this was something that especially after World War II, there was this this movement to have, you know, the the family den, quote unquote, full of kids' toys, rooms full of kids' toys. There was a proliferation of kind of aspirational toys and a focus on this kind of individual creativity as a value. But toys are also, of course, a site where parents kind of inscribe their, their hopes on their children. And of course, children take up particular toys to just to explore the world, to try to make sense of things that maybe don't quite make sense to them. But when it comes to marketing toys, there is definitely a lot of like adult projection and and uh, and hopeful, hopeful anticipation of well, this toy will help my child become an ex. Yeah. Will become a doctor, become a programmer, become whatever it might be, right? And That history, you know, going back long before computer games, is so, so gendered. Um, It continues to be, sadly. Um, And again, individual kids will break through those molds, but... They really have to push back against a lot of cultural messaging that encourages some kids in certain fields and discourages other kids.
2: Yeah, my my own history with learning at a program was, you know, I did have people who, who, you know, my parents who had a PC in the home and I found some books and materials, but mostly nobody ever really pushed back uh, or, or told me that like, oh, I, I didn't think you would be into programming or, or even those those subtle little cues that discourage people from pursuing some some lines and and encouraging other people we try to we pretend and tell ourselves that oh we're not we're not so easily uh, persuaded by by these tiny little things but it actually does have a large effect that you can see across a, a, a population.
1: Absolutely. And moreover, those little comments can accumulate, right? They plant a seed of doubt in a child's mind. And then maybe they hear another version of that message, and that grows that seed a little bit. Maybe they hear something a little more pointed. Somebody kind of maybe just telling a joke, but making fun of of kids who have that interest, kids like them who have that interest. And that continues to grow that seed, right? So certainly there are times when there is explicit gatekeeping, there's explicit exclusions, but often there are more kind of implicit messaging. There might be you know, somebody who's not welcome at a particular club. And sadly, I even saw this happen in Paraguay when I was doing field work on One Laptop per Child. There was a hackers club that that one of the volunteers who was down there who had previously worked for One Laptop per Child, but was working for Paraguay Educa at the time. He ran a, a great, you know, kind of coding club on Saturdays. He really wanted all sorts of kids to come, but it was all boys that came. And there was one really precocious girl who... I thought would be great there. And so I talked to her mom, who was really a booster for the project, really understood it in a way that many many there didn't necessarily. I said, why isn't your daughter going to this club? She'd be great. And her, her mom said, it's all boys. It is not a safe place for her. I don't, even though her brother was there, I don't want her being the only girl in that space. And I thought, she has a point. I mean, Paraguay is, you know, Rooms full of boys may not be a safe place for girls in along multiple dimensions. And I kind of don't blame her for saving her daughter from that experience. But it h- broke my heart at the same time, right? And these kinds of things play out all over the world. One thing that I really love that's pushing back against this, and in fact, I hear this as an entry point for so many girls today, are girls' robotics clubs. These often start, usually in high school, sometimes in junior high. They often operate kind of alongside co-ed robotics clubs, but they make a safe place for girls to be able to explore these ideas, to not feel like they have to be one of the few or maybe the only girl in the room and to to be able to find camaraderie with other, other girls who have similar interests. So I find that really, really promising as a, a new direction, new way that people are getting into it.
0: We talked about sort of historically entry points for programming. I thought we could talk about a little bit, just kind of wrapping up what are potentially other possible entry points for programming. You mentioned that uh, robotics and the girls clubs for robotics, which I think is fantastic. And I did a little survey online on Twitter just to kind of get an idea of, you know, my small audience. And I tried to have people retweet to get kind of a little bit of a reach and definitely the older crowd. It was, you know, They were all models of (laughs) what you have in the book of like, uh, you know, precocious boys, everything from VIC-20s to Spectrums, you know, if they're like from uh, England or what have you, these other kind of early computers were, you know, brought into the home and the kid was, you know, allowed to kind of play with them and kind of grew up with them and being in that. But what I see from the younger audience that I have is various, very different entry points. And there are, you know, one mentioned Minecraft. Um, I thought this really f- fun one was that they were using, uh, playing a game called Club Penguin.
1: <laughs> oh, a Club Penguin. I remember that.
0: <laughs> and they wanted to automate it and basically figure out a way to do that. And that was their entry to programming. Another one was, a lot of them were, they got into science in college and were frustrated to the point where they were like, I need to automate this experiments and other things and turn to programming and and kind of fell in love with it from there. And so I, I wonder about that. And you mentioned several times this idea of like, you know, what, it's kind of like the why of programming isn't really there for, <laughs> in the idea of, an, you know, let's spend an hour of code. And it's like, well, why? You know, like, what, what am I getting out of it? Well, you're learning how to code. And it's like, well, you know, what can I do with that? And that was a problem that I had early on because I dropped out of electrical engineering because I didn't find computers that interesting at the time. I was, you know, I I got into a band and I was, you know, totally into the music kind of thing. And that's kind of where I kind of swam in sort of music technology. And now computers can kind of do all those things, but I feel like there aren't always explained the entry points into it. I mean, you mentioned a couple that I I wasn't familiar with, the TamTam, Uh, thing sounds kind of interesting as a music entry video games have been one and, and al's written several books about you know trying to get people interested in programming through creating games do you have other ideas of like entry points that that maybe are kind of outside there
1: yeah yeah um a colleague a friend of mine christo sims wrote really a wonderful book about this, um, it's actually focused on a kind of tech heavy charter school that was started in New York, and its original mission was to really foster entry points for underrepresented students of various sorts, right? They had a, a big Latina population, a lot of girls. One thing that that he found in, in his ethnography of this school, a lot of kids loved, loved, loved music remixing and yeah. you know, coming up with cl- clever memes sometimes, right? The TikTok cultures. Um, I feel like there is a lot of richness that happens in these spaces that is underappreciated as a kind of technical entry point. He was at the time under the kind of under the umbrella of connected learning. It's this movement um, headed up by Mimi Ito and others that, that really tries to use children's existing interests and existing kind of communities um, and friends and cultures as entry points to scaffold into learning of a lot of different sorts. It doesn't write, doesn't have to be programming, but, but I think music mixing definitely lends itself to a certain kind of computational thinking. Sadly, what Christo found at this school, though, was that those kinds of technical expressions were almost systematically undervalued by teachers. The teachers um, who were very well-meaning, right? They were working at this progressive school. They really wanted to support these kids, but they would say, no, 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 that's not the idea I have for what you, what a technical kind of Mm -hmm. uh, activity is. What you need to do is... Is you know program a video game or program something else? Right there is there's a kind of focus on that, and I think it's important to have those entry points. But it's also important to have entry points that really start and are grounded in the cultures that diverse children exist within, yeah. um, and to take those children those those cultures that children exist in really seriously as starting points. That's one thing I love about cultural studies, which is, I I would say, one pretty strong influence on my own scholarship, right? It takes popular culture, including children's cultures, really seriously. It doesn't discount it as kind of frivolous or just mere entertainment. These things have real influence on on people's lives and on people's worldviews. And so I that is, sadly, a, a kind of sad Tail, but i think there's a lot of potential there right in in kind of scaffolding up from from tiktok culture whatever it might be from from music remixing into computation and i feel like there too there is a wonderful opportunity for really addressing some of the more critical angles right of of quality control of kind of community building building of you know maybe using kind of restorative justice models when when things kind of go south right mm-hmm. so so i i kind of love movements towards that that i see i mentioned girls robotics clubs also i've i've heard from so many how crucial that is for girls in particular i also look to organizations like black girls code and and their mission is is a little more directly about coding right they they, they talk about the value of learning to code. They don't necessarily have that critical angle, but they really do it from a point that starts with the culture of, of Black teenage girls. And I love that. I love the fact that they are run by largely Black women, That they that they know those worlds, and they really use that as a starting point.
0: I wonder sometimes if, like, the answer sometimes might be the idea of, like, would you like more power? And I mean that by, like, you know, over your life, over, you know, the jobs that you're doing, giving yourself more time, controlling all these devices that are around you, or, you know, like you said, the idea of like this critical perspective on like how technology is being used against you. Well, could you turn the tables a little bit in the sense that, you know, how are you being tracked? And, you know, the idea of like using this technology in a way that empowers you more as opposed to Necessarily being a consumer, which isn't terrible, but there's so much more to it. I I also think about the idea of people trying to push steam back to STEM. (laughs) Yes. Taking the art out of it, you know, and which I kind of is really interesting to me because, like, to me, everything that's interesting about computers is the artistic side.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you bring up power too. And I think this comes back to. What we started with today, right? My own motivation for studying computer science back in the day. When I came to Berkeley initially, I was going to be, I think, an English and an astrophysics major because I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. And I figured <laughs> that would like hedge my bets. I could do a lot there of things. You go. <laughs> but I was quickly drawn to, to programming because it felt powerful. And the way it was talked about in my classes was powerful. It was clear. I mean, there's an economic side, which which I... Understand as a kind of necessity, but I find limiting right the like oh there 's a good paying job yes. at the end, like yes right being able to to pay the bills is important, <laughs> right nobody should should starve for their ideals, even though sadly people people are in those positions all the time. Um, I would love the humanities and social sciences to be a lot better funded, but yes, but we 're in a kind of you know market driven neoliberal kind of Economy. We, and... we have so many apps
2: to create <laughs> so, that will save the world and make it a better place.
1: Uh. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I find it a little frustrating that like, oh, it makes economic sense. But at the same time, I'm like, it's, I understand when people are like, I want to, I hear from Latine students in particular all the time. Like, I'm studying computer science because I want to make enough money to support my family, they came here, they've been, you know, maybe there are a number of students at Berkeley who have, like, their families have been working in the farm fields of Salinas or or right. the Central Valley in California all their lives to support them. And they said, it's my turn to support them. That's why I'm studying computer science. And I'm, I say, go for it, right? But more broadly, I feel like that focus on the economic angle, which I hear especially from privileged white parents, right? I live in Silicon Valley. I'm surrounded by, by upper middle class families who are thinking carefully. You've
0: got several <laughs> projects. You're, you're kind of focusing on that stuff too, which is I think is yeah, fascinating. Yeah, a, a whole other episode.
1: <laughs> the kinds, I'd love to if you want to. It's, uh, I might need to get a little deeper into that next project, but, um, but the kinds of messages that that upper middle class parents who work in tech give their kids is really not tech critical in any way. Um, It's very kind of instrumentalist and like, yes, you should study this because you can get a good paying job like me, right? And I have all the support that you need to to scaffold you into this and, and to foster your interests here. And, and the the tech industry ends up just kind of recreating itself right both through those means and also through the focus on these these kinds of older I would say I would love them for for them to be outdated they are not quite yet right the I, this this right. social imaginary the technically precocious boy when really there are so many entry points into coding today, but we still tell that story we still tell it through movies and and through books and and through um, news articles,
2: it, it's sort of what what Facebook is also doing right now with with metaverse stuff. And and really, this is just from the novel Snow Crash from 1992. And but now uh, Facebook and and Mark Zuckerberg have a lot of power, so they decide, hey, uh, VR and and metaverse that sounds cool, let's create that. But it's really sort of a limited imagination of of just their own nostalgia for things that were popular. Twenty years ago.
1: Oh yes, <laughs> and the metaverse—like that was a dystopian world. It instead. is totally dystopian. <laughs> like,
2: every every, every mention
0: I can think of of it, you know, <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I I think you know, I, I William Gibson and Neuromancer, I think, defined so much of the cyber libertarianism of the 1990s, right? The oh, console yes. cowboys, this idea of manifest destiny, all of the kind of colonialist uh, connotations of that. That, of course, were kind of unquestioned by many then, but we can look at a little with a little bit more critical eye now. But yeah, we are still playing over some of those same kinds of whether utopian or dystopian kind of literary worlds, whether it's Snow Crash. Man, um, I heard so much reference to Diamond Age in my research <laughs> on One Laptop Per Child. Again, a kind of dystopian oh. world. Um, but they were they talked about the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer being a kind of motivator or model in some ways for, yeah. for what they were trying to make.
2: Uh, the Diamond Age is also a, a novel by Neal Stephenson who wrote Snow Crash. And I know we're at the end of this episode Episode, I could just keep talking for hours and hours. But (laughs) I, I also personally knew Alex Peak, who was behind the Code Hero Kickstarter project. This was one of the first Kickstarters that uh, hit the six-figure realm in in how much money it raised—one hundred seventy thousand dollars—and it wasn't necessarily a scam. Although there were a lot of questionable things and, and nobody knows where that money went. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but it was this idea of we're going to create a video game that, that teaches kids how to code. And they raised a lot of money for it and it went absolutely nowhere because Alex was very much, uh, enamored with the idea of the diamond age and, and this idea of having this, software that could teach he said you know not just coding but he he wanted his project to eventually be used to teach anything which kind of dives into that whole idea with uh, moocs and online classrooms that that were also really popular a decade ago
1: yeah yeah this i mean in so many ways the code hero story is Almost a perfect recapitulation of many of the stories that were told about one laptop per child. Right, kids would fall in love with this. They teach themselves everything. Of course, OLPC didn't have a 3D world. This machine was so underpowered; it could it <laughs> barely limp along with like playing an, an episode of anime.
2: <laughs> yeah, it it was a uh, like a a one gigabyte hard drive and a uh, 256 megabytes of of memory, which even back in 2005 was was. Uh, it was pretty Nothing. sparse, yeah. yeah it that. was, oh. But, you know, it, it's enough to make uh, text-based games in BASIC, so, uh, you know, it should be enough Why for kids today, right? Why would you need more? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Get that hurdle um, moving.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, code, I, I'm glad you mentioned Code Hero, just because it's, it's again, such a wonderful kind of, or, or terrible, if you are
2: if like. Yeah, it, it was pretty awful.
1: <laughs> Depending on how you look at it, re-encapsulation of so many of the same ideas. And I... One hope I have for all of this work is that even just reading this history of one laptop or child and reflecting a little bit on it helps people recognize when these same stories come up again, whether it's in Code Hero, whether it's in spaces, whether it's, you know, in the next new kind of ed tech project, um, certainly VR, I think some of those same stories get retold. So my hope is that in recognizing those stories, we're able to kind of Maybe resist falling into that that charismatic trap yeah. I recognize that charisma in a way is important for getting funding for a project for you know galvanizing support for a project but I do feel like you know falling into that utopian vision really separates you from the from the lived experiences of people on the ground with diverse needs and desires and, and daily lives. And that is often what is missing in these kinds of projects, that really, that good grounding. And honestly, a little bit of humility um, from the parts of developers <laughs> admitting that their solution might not work, that they don't know everything, that they really need to listen and to kind of put themselves in the background as much as possible.
2: It's
0: quite the scarcity of humility out there
1: right now.
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll create the humility app and <laughs> we'll solve that problem.
0: <laughs> a daily dose of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, I, I at least would like to give you a chance to do any shout outs or uh, sort of social connection information that you'd like to share.
1: Yeah, sure. I gosh if I if I were to do shout outs to people who have helped me along the along the way of of all of these projects yeah I I feel like we'd be here another hour at least I do I I think I've mentioned some along the way there's some wonderful other literature um one that I haven't mentioned that I feel like has just been really inspiring for me as well is a lot of Lily Arani's work she's a professor at UC San Diego and wrote this this great book, Chasing Innovation, where she kind of breaks down this idealism around design thinking. Oh, cool. But she's doing a lot of great activist work now around, like, the San Diego Streetlight Project, which put these surveillance streetlights all over San Diego um, without really much oversight at all, and and a lot of other areas, right? Kind of, she's she helped kind of write Turkopticon and kind of help, continues to help uh, run that, that world, that that way of workers organizing, Mechanical Turk, uh, Turkers organizing and um, pushing back against exploitative practices. Gosh, there's so many people. So I, <laughs> I, I retweet many of these kinds of people. So okay. I, I encourage people, if, you, if they want to, to connect with others, feel free to follow me. And,
0: <laughs> and, yeah, I'll include all that information. Yeah.
1: And I tend to be pretty leftist on, uh, on, in my, my Twitter presence at least, but but I do try to retweet a lot of useful things along these lines. Cool.
0: And Al, do you have any... Uh-
2: oh, yeah. Uh- thing you want to shout out here briefly? Mostly, I just wanted to to just shout out The Charisma uh, Machine because it's such an incredible book and such a relevant book for, for me because I'm, I want to teach people to code and also I see, you know, I, I lived in, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley for, for about uh, 12 years and there is, there are a lot of naked emperors uh, <laughs> out there and so I felt like reading this book uh, and, and Getting, and just reading the ideas that, that were in it is just so important to avoid the next hype cycle. Uh, so I, I really want to shout out that book. Um, and then also I write my own books, The uh, Teaching People How to Program in Python. And uh, you can read them for free online. They're available under a Creative Commons license at inventwithpython.com.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, Morgan, for coming on the show. And thanks again, Al, for returning and bringing this uh, to my attention. This has been fantastic.
1: Thank you both for this opportunity. It's great to get a chance to talk with you. Thank you.
2: Yes.
0: Don't forget, you can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Morgan Ames and Al Swagart for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.